Abnormal vaginal bleeding is one of the most common clinical problems experienced by women. What should we do to avoid missing serious malignancy? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Medical Imaging. I am Beverly Hashimoto, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donna Kramer. Today we are discussing the radiographic approach to vaginal bleeding. Dr. Kramer is former Deputy Chief of the Department of Radiology of Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. She is currently the Radiology Quality Assurance Officer and Section Head of the Radiology Department Patient Access Area. She has about 20 years of clinical and research experience in gynecologic imaging. Because of her administrative roles, Dr. Kramer has a unique perspective. She is not only able to discuss the academically correct methods of identifying gynecologic abnormalities, but she is also able to discuss the practical, cost-effective aspects of detecting these lesions. Thank you, Dr. Kramer, for being with us today. My pleasure. Dr. Kramer, what are the most common diagnostic techniques used for the workup of vaginal bleeding? Well, from the imager's perspective, which is where I come from, though I spent a couple of years as a in-the-trenches gynecology clinic worker, too, so I have a little of that perspective as well. But mostly, we use endovaginal ultrasound. We're looking at thickness of the endometrium. A thicker endometrium is, in general, abnormal. We started out using this imaging technique primarily in postmenopausal women, though now we've evolved to using it more in premenopausal women as well. But that is definitely the mainstay for evaluating patients with abnormal bleeding. Pelvic MR is used to in patients who have a proven anatomic abnormality or in problem solving. But we start off with pelvic ultrasound. Well, for vaginal bleeding, what sonographic findings cause you to worry about malignancy? Well, in postmenopausal patients, and remember endometrial cancer is primarily a disease of postmenopausal women. Age is the primary risk factor for endometrial cancer. In those patients, we're looking mostly at just the thickness of an endometrium. One year after you had your last period, your endometrium should be five millimeters or less. And so once that endometrium gets thicker than that, there's an increased risk of endometrial cancer with every degree of thickening of the endometrium. In premenopausal women, it's way more difficult because that endometrium is cycling every month. So you expect it to get thicker just before menstruation and thinner afterwards. So establishing what's a normal appearance is a little more difficult. Now, when do you do an endometrial biopsy instead of an ultrasound? Well, that depends where you're coming from. If you have a patient in your office and you're a gynecologist and they're presenting with postmenopausal bleeding, usually you perform an endometrial biopsy right then. Endometrial biopsy is not perfect for detecting endometrial carcinoma, and it has a very high rate of being non-diagnostic, both just because of insufficient sampling and because the patient has an atrophic endometrium, which is difficult to sample very well. If you're an internist and you have a postmenopausal patient with abnormal bleeding and you don't perform endometrial biopsy, 
then you might send them to have an endovaginal ultrasound. If the endometrium is thin and normal in appearance, measures less than five millimeters, then the chance that they have endometrial cancer is extremely small, and you can probably treat them with the presumption that they have endometrial atrophy. And then if you did the endometrial biopsy, you got an insufficient sample, then you may send them for endovaginal ultrasound with the same idea. If they have an endometrium less than five millimeters, then the reason you didn't get an adequate sample is, again, probably because the patient has an atrophic endometrium. But it's most efficient to have the fewest stops for the patient and get the most information you can. So it's a little bit depends on where you're coming from, what's the best approach. Now, you presented some work about the most cost-effective methods when you retrospectively reviewed a large number of cases. What were your findings with respect to ultrasound versus endometrial biopsies? Well, as I remember, the most cost-effective way is in postmenopausal patients, and this used to include a lot of patients who were on hormone replacement therapy who were having abnormal bleeding as a consequence of their hormone replacement. We don't see that quite as much anymore. So most of the women we see with postmenopausal bleeding don't have that added complicating feature of being on a hormone replacement regimen. But in general, if you do an endometrial ultrasound, the endometrium is five millimeters or less then you can stop. If the patient is high risk, and the main risk factors for endometrial cancer are age, obesity are the two main ones. So if you have a 75-year-old obese woman, you're probably best to start with endometrial biopsy because the likelihood that you'll have an endometrium that's a little thicker than 5 millimeters is a little greater in that population, and you want the best test there is to prove that there's no endometrial cancer. But again, in premenopausal women, it's way more complicated because then we're also introducing the complication of anovulatory cycles and other things that can cause abnormal bleeding. It's much more straightforward in postmenopausal patients. In those patients, you're probably best to start off with the endovaginal ultrasound. Well, that's very interesting. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Medical Imaging on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Beverly Hashimoto, and I am speaking with Dr. Donna Kramer. We are discussing the radiographic approach to vaginal bleeding. So when a woman has already had an endometrial biopsy, is there any need to have a pelvic ultrasound? An endometrial biopsy is fairly sensitive for detecting endometrial carcinoma. However, as I said, they're frequently non-diagnostic. So if you, about 30% of the time, you'll do an endometrial biopsy, and the pathologist will tell you that this tissue you have is insufficient to adequately evaluate the endometrium. In those patients, if you go on to do an endovaginal ultrasound and you find that the endometrium is thicker than five millimeters, there may be reason to go further, to take the patient to the operating room for a true DNC, to do hysteroscopy. Endometrial biopsy will frequently miss endometrial polyps, which are usually benign, but 
the diagnosis of an endometrial polyp depends on the pathologist visualizing the fibrovascular core in the center of the polyp. And so if you just scrape some endometrial tissue off the surface of a polyp, you won't be aware that there's a polyp in there that may be responsible for the bleeding. So if you have a non-diagnostic endometrial biopsy, it's often worth it to do an endovaginal ultrasound to help decide, again, is this atrophy or is it inadequate sampling of the endometrium for some other reason. Now, what is a hysterosonogram? How does that differ from the regular pelvic ultrasound, and when is it useful? A hysterosonogram allows you to really visualize the surface of the endometrium. Normally, when we do an endovaginal ultrasound, the two surfaces in the endometrium inside the uterus are in apposition. So you just see one stripe that is really both surfaces of the endometrium together. Sometimes you can see a line in the middle and tell that there are two halves to that endometrium that are approximately equal. A hysterosonogram is an endovaginal ultrasound that's performed after introducing a small catheter through the cervix into the endometrial cavity and instilling small amount of saline to separate those endometrial surfaces. So you can actually see the surface detail of the endometrium. You can see a fibroid protruding into the endometrial cavity. So it's excellent for evaluating the relationships of fibroids to the endometrium and helping to determine whether hysteroscopic resection of a fibroid might be possible. It's also very good for diagnosing endometrial polyps because once these polyps are surrounded with fluid, you see them like a stalactite from the endometrial surface, and they're much more easily identified than they are in just a regular endovaginal ultrasound. So who would order a hysterosonogram? Well, often, many places, a hysterosonogram can be ordered as part of the ultrasound evaluation. You can say, if the endometrium is thickened, then I'd like to have a hysterosonogram to look at the surface. The problem with that is that often if you have someone who's very experienced doing a regular endovaginal ultrasound, they can identify a probable endometrial polyp with a fairly high degree of certainty. And if you find that, then probably the most cost-efficient thing to do is to go on to a hysteroscopy, visualize the polyp, and remove it at the same time. The disadvantage of a hysterosonogram is that we can visualize the abnormality, but it really doesn't have any therapeutic value. So in a postmenopausal patient with a thickened endometrium, who has not yet had an endometrial sampling, there's probably not a great deal of value to a hysterosonogram. And the added difficulty there is you really want to avoid doing hysterosonography in patients who have endometrial carcinoma because one of the main ways in which they stage patients at surgery who have endometrial cancer is by doing peritoneal washings to determine if they're endometrial cells have reached the peritoneal cavity. And if you're flushing cells retrograde through the tubes with hysterosonogram, you can actually push those cells out into the peritoneal cavity, resulting in positive peritoneal washings in somebody who really probably doesn't have seeding of the peritoneal cavity. Now, when a woman is bleeding, because obviously that's the reason they're seeing you, is there any problem with doing a transvaginal ultrasound? A transvaginal ultrasound, there's no problem. 
transvaginal ultrasound. Hysterosonography then becomes a little more difficult anytime you're instilling fluid in the endometrium. You want to be sure, number one, that the patient isn't pregnant. So we like to have those timed so that they're early in the cycle when we expect the endometrium to be thin and so that we will avoid that very small chance that the patient's actually pregnant at the time of the hysterosonogram. Is color Doppler useful in cases of vaginal bleeding? Color Doppler ultrasound is actually quite useful in a thickened endometrium. As I said, most endometrial polyps have a fibrovascular core, and the vascular part of that fibrovascular is a vessel that you can visualize. Normally, the vessels in the endometrium are really not detectable with color Doppler, but in endometrial polyps, you can often see a very linear vessel that comes from the myometrium into the endometrium and right into the stock of that polyp. So if you have focal endometrial thickening or even generalized thick endometrium, sometimes color Doppler can really help convince you that there is a polyp living in there. Thank you, Dr. Kramer. I am Dr. Beverly Hashimoto, and you have been listening to Advances in Medical Imaging on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, now featuring podcasts of this and other featured series. Thank you for listening.